Today we'll be examining who we are as unbelievers and who we've become as believers. I've entitled this message, Dead to Sin, Alive in Christ. If you're not there, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now, I was looking. We actually did a study in the book of Ephesians, and um, you know, Phil took us through it, and I felt like that wasn't that long ago, but looking back at it, it was 2016 when we did that. Yeah, I, I, was, I, couldn't, I was like, this, the dating on our website's wrong. Um, so, but yeah, it's been, it's been a few years, so uh, you know, hopefully you have a great memory, but for those who don't, um, I'll do a quick little synopsis uh, of chapter one just to give us some context here. The Apostle Paul is writing to these Gentile, non-Jew believers here um, in, in the Ephesus, the, town, the city of Ephesus, and uh, he's writing from prison. He's in house arrest at this time. And uh, he opens this letter with praise to God the Father for what he's done through Jesus Christ and in, in adopting us through Christ into God's family. And in this, he highlights the triune work of God that, you know, we have um, uh, been elected by God the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. And then he ends chapter 1 with a, with a thanksgiving and prayer toward the Ephesian believers um, chapter 1 concludes with Paul emphasizing God's great power and might that was displayed in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated at his right hand, giving him all authority. Uh, chapter 2, now know, know that in the Bible, there was, this is all just one continuous letter. It wasn't broken up in chapter and verses. But <clears throat> chapter 2, uh, the text begins with Anne, which is connecting it to what was last previously stated in chapter 1 that this power of God that was manifested in Christ is also at work in you who are in Christ. Paul goes into detail, how, into detail how this power is displayed in the personal life of these believers. And instead of going straight into who they are in Christ, he starts where we all must start and reminds them of who they were outside of Christ. And here's our first point that we must recognize in our text. Our state as unbelievers. Our state as unbelievers. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The condition in which these Gentile believers were in outside of Christ was that of utter deadness. The can, um, and, and being dead, that the word uh, necros in, in Greek um, it's just that. There's nothing more just dead. There's nothing more you can add to it. It is dead. 
And what Paul is doing here is before he highlights the, the uh, ascension in which the Christians have been raised to, he reminds them of the depths in which they've been raised from. And, and he's doing, and, and right so in doing, for we will never appreciate who and what we are in Christ until, unless we contemplate and understand who we would still be if not God had intervened in our lives. I will go further in saying that we will never appreciate and love Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf unless we first understand our standing outside of him. This understanding is, is where all believers must start. This realization of the depths of our deadness and depravity in the light of God's holiness. It is in this realization that should bring about an overwhelming dread upon those who are outside of Christ. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. And while this is absolutely 100% where all believers must start, it is not something that we grow past and move on to. In fact, the whole of the Christian life is a deepening understanding of this truth. A deepening understanding of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, God's righteousness and our unrighteousness, God's worthiness and our unworthiness. The greater we understand this truth, the greater our appreciation and love for God will be. The deeper our worship and adoration will be. Those who believe that they are forgiven of little and saved from little will love little. Luke 7, 47. This death is, of course, a, a, what he's talking about is a spiritual death. Paul says that this deadness is brought about on account of our sins and trespasses. Trespasses and sins here are synonymous with each other. Sins is to uh, fall short or to miss the mark. And, and trespass here is um, paratoma in Greek, and what it means is to falsely step. We understand this, right? We understand what it means to trespass somewhere. It means to falsely step. Uh, it denotes a conscience and deliberate act. It's not as if, you know, it was an accident. Our sins are accidents. It is a conscience and deliberate act and not merely a mistake. It's as if there is a hard line in the sand that is drawn. God has drawn a hard line in the sand, and we have purposely and willingly and knowingly crossed that line. Trespass. Our sins are, are deliberate acts of rebellion against God, whether you know it or not, whether you're aware of this or not. Just as God had promised to Adam concerning the fruit of the tree of good, knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17. Now, how do we understand? I mean, we understand what it means to be dead. But how do we understand what it means to be spiritually dead? What does that mean? Well, I would say we should compare it in light of what life is, spiritual life. Um, and when it comes to our spiritual life, it is always regarded in terms of our relationship with God. John 17.3, our Lord states, and this is eternal life that you know, or that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When we read of Adam's sin in the garden, we read that he was cast out of the immediate presence of God. Uh, 
Isaiah 59, too, that, that Dave read, and it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Sin has separate us, separated us from God, and therefore separated us from life, from the giver of life, from the sustainer of life. Now, notice that this text does not say you were sick in your trespasses and sins. You were injured in your trespasses and sins. And you were paralyzed in your trespasses and sins. No, you were dead. There is a completeness to this. If one is sick, injured, or even dying, there is still hope, no matter how bleak, for their recovery. There is still a chance for life. Tell me, how much chance does a dead person have? How much hope is there for a dead person in this life? What worse state can we be in? There's so much weight that comes with this word that Paul uses here, and it is deliberate. There is such finality to it. For what does a dead person do? Nothing. What hope does a dead person have? None. The dead are in a state of utter hopelessness and helplessness. Sin is the cause of the spiritual death of people, and they will remain in this dead condition unless God acts. Paul is saying to these Ephesian believers and to us today, if you are in Christ, that this was the state in which you were once in on account of your sins, a state of complete deadness and hopelessness cut off from God, cut off from life, the giver and sustainer of life. And this is all that sin can bring about. Sin promises satisfaction. Sin promises fulfillment. Sin promises enjoyment. Sin even promises freedom. But the fact of the matter is, sin deceives and can only bring forth death. This would be a concept very well known to ancient Israel. We talked about it a little bit in our men's group. Now, I'm so glad that this, you know, we have the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and, and that sacrificial system is gone. But if you can imagine bringing your sin offering to the tabernacle, you with the rest of the nation, and as you approach, you can smell death. I don't know if anyone's ever been lived anywhere near a slaughterhouse. It's got a very distinct smell. Very distinct. And you know it immediately. If you, if you recognize what it is at once, you will recognize it forever. Oh, that's the slaughterhouse. That's the smell of death. And they'd be bringing this animal to the, the, uh, the, the priest to be slaughtered, to be burnt as a burnt offering. And they would lay their hands upon this, this animal in a symbolic uh, gestured as to say that they were transferring their sin, their guilt to this animal, and it was now going to die in place of them. For sin brings about death. And they would slit the throat of the animal, pouring forth the blood, pouring out the life, for life is in the blood. 
and they would see this grotesque scene of, of blood. I mean, rivers, rivers of blood flowing out of the tabernacle, burnt flesh being burnt, organs, the smell, the scene. It was gory. It was not a pretty sight, but it was as if God wanted a vivid portrayal of what sin does and what it, what it is. It's almost as if God's saying, look at this. This is what your sin brings about. This is what your sin causes. This gory scene. This is all that it can do. This is man's greatest problem. If you are outside of Christ, you do not know Christ as your Savior. This is your greatest problem right now. Man's greatest need is not to be rescued from loneliness, rescued from depression, rescued from unfulfilled, purposeless life, rescued from addiction even, rescued from a failed marriage. Now, praise God that those of us who are in Christ, these things are possible. We do get fulfillment. We do have purpose. We can have healing in our marriages. We can... Uh, overcome addiction. Amen. But this, this is not our greatest problem. It is not a problem of loneliness or unfulfilled purposeless life or, or that man lacks self-control. Man's greatest problem is his own sinfulness, hopeless, dead state in the midst of a holy God. Paul reminds these Ephesian believers of their state prior to Christ, that of just utter deadness. If you are here today and you do not have a saving relationship with Christ, that is your status this morning and will remain unless you repent. He goes on in verse 2 and 3, in which you once walked, the sins and trespasses is is what you once walked in, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul goes on to further paint the picture of our deadness and uh, states to these Ephesian believers uh, our, our servitude, as unbelievers. And that's our second point here. We want to see that our servitude as unbelievers. <clears throat> uh, he goes on to, in these next two verses to show how their lives were conducted in relationship to their spiritual dead state. Um, the word walked here is another word for lived and the way they conducted their lives. The former way of the Ephesian believers can be recounted in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, don't quote me now. I think it's Paul's third missionary journey where he goes to Ephesus and he preaches the gospel there. And what ensues is, is some believe, but others do not. And an, an actual riot breaks out in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a metropolitan, was a, was a trading city with a port, um, was, was one of the bigger, well-known uh, financially well-off cities. Um, it was home to the temple of Diana or, or Artemis. If you're unfamiliar with this temple, um, it is one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world. Uh, 
give you an idea, this temple measured 220 feet by 425 feet with 120, 127 marble columns 62 feet high. Uh, this construction of this temple took uh, 220 years to complete. And it made Ephesus a beacon of rabid adultery. It was here that Paul's preaching the gospel against idolatry brought about a riot. There are three categories that the apostle lays out in which the dead and their sins are in service to. The first is the world. The course of this world or age of this world is a term to use to describe the fallen people and system that manifests itself in ways that are contrary and are directly opposed to that of God. Those outside of Christ conforms to standards of the present world and its way of thinking. And we see this more prevalently today than ever before. People go along with whatever they are fed and believe whatever they are told and hate that which they are told to hate. There's things that would have been shunned just even 50 years ago that are not only accepted but celebrated today. One of the defining marks of a believer is that they are not in line with the ways of this world. In their thinking, in their conduct, and that which they value. Ask yourself this morning, what do you spend your energies on? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your desires? What consumes your time? What consumes your money? Does it parallel with that of the world? Paul instructs in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He goes on to, to list the second category in which those who are dead in their sins are in service to, and that is Satan himself. It seems, and I'll admit, you know, sometimes when we talk about, you know, we, we use the term the devil, it just seems so in this age of, of um, sophistication and modern uh, technology, seems somewhat, you know, weird to start talking about, oh, the, the devil did this and the devil did that. But we must understand that there is a force in this world. It doesn't take much to turn on the news and we can see that there is such a thing as evil in this world. The secular world and those in it is governed by Satan himself. Called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is the ruler of this realm. Air in ancient times was, a, was thought to be the space between the earth and the moon, and the Greeks thought of it as a lower, impure air, um, the home of, of spirits, of evil spirits. Paul's day, the air was considered as a dwelling place for these spirits. It was considered the realm of unseen evil powers and that stretched across the whole of the earth. Uh, there is no place that is not affected by this. No place that is not affected by its influence and its suggestive power. It is why Paul would later state in chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, in, this enemy's influence is at work. 
and all the sons of disobedience. Another name for fallen man. And it is ironic how unrepentant, unregenerate man in his pride will speak boldly of his emancipation from religion, freedom from God and religion, while all the while being blind to the bonds they carry held by the devil himself. He is our great adversary. One need to only remember the study that we're currently going through in the book of Job to know this is true. He's our great adversary, and, and apart from Christ, we cannot stand against him for one second. But thanks be to God that greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Lastly, Paul goes on to mention the third category in which those outside of Christ are in service to, and that is the flesh. Among, Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were na by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Flesh in the Bible can, can denote our physical body, but here and, and in other places, um, it has a more of a negative connotation to it, our, uh, to which is often char characterized by our sinful nature. Uh, our sinful nature is at odds with God, and, and since the fall of man, the moment Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were given a new nature, one of, of sin. And we see this play out immediately. The moment God's presence comes, comes into the garden, what do Adam and Eve do? Flee from God. That is our new nature. Our flesh, our being in its natural state is corrupt, seeking only to satisfy sin in all of its lustful forms. The unregenerate, unregenerate man will set his mind on that which only satisfies his flesh. The fact that we are slaves to our sinful flesh is made evident in the words carrying out the desires of the body. Paul is not just being repetitive here, but showing the servitude that man is in his natural state. It is one thing to have sinful passions, but another to have to carry them out. This shows just the depth of our servitude to our own flesh. Unlike the Christian that will wrestle with sin, the one who is dead in their sins gives into their sins continuously, without a fight, without conviction. Is that you today? Is there a battle, a struggle between your sins between the flesh and the spirit? Or is it something that you continually give into without any regard for the sin that you are committing against a holy God? I, I remember I had a, a friend that we used to go to church with, and he would confess of, of this sin that he struggled with quite often. And he would call it that. He's like, it's my struggle. I just keep, you know, it's my struggle. And I finally said, you know, struggle denotes a, a, an idea of, you know, you, sometimes you, you win a little bit, you lose. That's, you know, it's, it's a back and forth. I'm all, you give in every time. There's no struggle there. Paul gives a good description of the flesh in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 5. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Like a wild animal living only to seek out its next meal, so, it, so is man with his flesh, seeking only to satisfy the sinful cravings within him. Paul ends this verse with the words, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That saying there, by nature children of wrath, flies in the face of this idea that, that people, men, are naturally good. That in and of ourselves are naturally good. Now, don't get me wrong. We can do good things outside as unbelievers. You know, we are still made in the image of God. We still can have compassion and care for things. We can still feel sorry for and have empathy for things. But the motivation behind why we do things is corrupt. Man in and of himself is not good. At the fall, man received a new nature, a sin nature. And therefore, acts of sin committed in our flesh are not forced, but natural and desirable. And this is evident once you become a parent. It's you, funny, you don't have to teach your child how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to hit, how to do bad things. They've got that down, and they've got it down pretty good. Not only were we sons of disobedience, but children of wrath. This title is most likely a term with regard to our lineage to Adam. All sin is worthy of God's wrath, and since Adam sinned, we by nature are sinners, making us children of wrath. We are born into a sinful nature, a sinful state, a slave to the world, slave to Satan, slave to our flesh and its desires, dead in our trespasses, deserving the wrath of God along with the rest of mankind. That is who you are outside of Christ. And if you are in Christ, that is who you were before. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul has thus far painted a despairing picture of man's seemingly hopeless and unredeemable condition. He then uses this image as a dark backdrop to introduce a burst of light in the form of hope with the words, but God. Those two precious words are the prelude to the hope of all believers and the foundation of the Christian life. We who are dead could do nothing, but God acted. Salvation indeed belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2.9. Here we will examine our foundation of our transition. Our foundation of our transition. Paul makes a transition in his writing here with the word but. But God, being rich in mercy or love, who is rich in mercy. While Paul is highlighting an attribute of God or highlighting an act of God of his um, merciful acts, he's more so highlighting God's character. It is not that God has acts of mercy and is therefore merciful, but rather God is in of himself merciful and therefore acts in mercy toward us. The action is reflective of the character. And this mercy is deep, rich, literally, the word means wealthy, an abundance of. There is no credit limit, as it were, when it comes to the riches of God's grace. 
There's no shortage of this mercy, no limit, and rightfully so, and needfully so, for our debt was great. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, Romans 5.20. The second half of this verse shows the motivation behind this mercy. He says, because of the great love which he loved us. Now, I know I've, I've stated this before in, in past sermons, but I, you know, so many churches, uh, they, just, they talk about just, they don't want to talk about God's love. Talk about the love of God. Talk about grace. Talk about mercy. Talk about the good things. Stay away from, from the harsher things. Leave out the harsh thing like God's wrath, sin, hell, and repentance. Even though the Apostle Paul and the Apostles and Jesus himself spoke on these things, but the two go hand in hand. And sometimes what I've done in the past is I get so frustrated by it. Because what it does is, is it cheapens the cross. It cheapens what was done for us. But sometimes a pendulum can swing too far the other way with me. I can focus too much on the wrath of God. And I'm like, Yo, we understand the love of God. We, we get it. God loves us. But you, do you understand that you deserve hell? I can become a fire and brimstone uh, preacher, forgetting to preach of this great love of God. Now, of course, God ultimately saves us for his own glory, as we will plainly see here in a bit. But God would have been completely justified and even glorified in punishing sin and wiping us out of existence. But instead, acts in love toward us, chooses to love and this love leads to an inexhaustible treasure of mercy. We sing songs like, I stand amazed. But I ask you this morning, are we amazed at this love? Do we contemplate it? Or are we just used to it and sing those lyrics with no real contemplation and awe? As I said before, the, the Christian life is one of a continuous growth in this knowledge. Continuous growth in this truth. A deepening of understanding of our sin and unworthiness. And in this, the, the more we understand this, the more it is that the love that God shows us stands out all the more beautiful. But God, being rich in mercy, verse 5a even when we were dead in our trespasses, he says. Now, <clears throat> I want us to notice something here. Paul says, he basically is reiterating the exact same thing he says in verse 1, right? He says, but th there is a difference here. He says in verse uh, 5a, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now, Paul changes the pronoun there from you to we. Now, we've already discussed who the Ephesian believers were before their conversion. They were witchcraft-practicing, uh, immoral, idolatrous unbelievers. But who was Paul? Take your Bibles. Turn to Philippians with me. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. Verse 4, 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 says, Though I myself, this is Paul speaking, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that means our works and what we do, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, a teacher, as it were, um, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the uh, righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So here I want us to just recognize something. You can be a moral person. You can even have an understanding of who God is. And you can even be religion, religious. You can come to church every day, every Sunday. You can have good works, do good things. But if you are outside of Christ, if you do not know Christ, you are no better off than a pagan unbeliever. No better off than an idolater. This is what Paul is saying. He is identifying with these pagan or previously pagan idolatrous people. He says, we all were in the same boat. You had works of, of idolatry and, and sin, yet I had works of sin of self-righteousness. I thought I was a good person. I thought I did good things. I thought I was pleasing God. All the while, I was under his wrath. I, too, was a transgressor. And here we see the depths of this love. This great love of God, which was shown even before we've done anything, while we were dead in our trespasses. Paul reminds us that in spite of our trespasses and sins against him, God loved, thus highlighting the greatness of this love. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This love did not come because of something we did. This love did not come because of an insufficiency of God himself, that he didn't want heaven without us. That God was lonely and, and needed someone to keep him company. It came undeservedly, unwarranted, and we were at our worst. Dead. What condition is worse than death? Than death? You have heard people say, I need to clean up my life before I start coming to church. I need to clean up the things in my life before I come to God. When you look at a corpse, you think to yourself, what this person needs is to be cleaned up a little bit. What he's lacking is, is you know, purpose. What he's lacking is, is, you know, that fulfillment. What they are lacking is life. Cleaning it up will not make it any less dead. The statement lays siege to our strivings and, and desire to earn favor with God. And I think it's ironic that this is one of the most foundational 
truths, an elementary truth of Christianity, but I think for many of us, we struggle with this love of God, don't we? We've been in the faith for a long time, even, some of us. I know this is true of me. When I mess up, when I sin, I'm like, oh, that was it. That was the one, Cam. God is uh, not happy with me. Ashamed, we convince ourselves that we do not deserve this love, this mercy, this salvation, and that God is looking down on you with contempt. And you know what? You're right. You don't deserve it, can't deserve it, can't earn favor with God, yet it is available to you. And it is available in an unmeasurable abundance. How is this made possible? The following verses describe that for us. Look at verse 5b. <clears throat> You're made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here we examine our state as believers. The corpse does not need dressing up. The corpse needs life, right? And the only way to have life is in Christ. Apart from Christ, there is only death. Dwight L. Moody, an American evangelist during the mid to late 1800s, said that when he was a young man, he was called upon suddenly in Chicago to preach a funeral sermon. A good many Chicago businessmen were to be there. And he said to himself, now it will be a good chance for me to preach the gospel to those men, and I will get one of Christ's funeral sermons. He recounts, I hunted all through the four gospels trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons, but I could not find any. I found he broke up every funeral he ever attended. He never preached a funeral sermon in the world. Death couldn't exist where he was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. He will smash up the undertaking's business when he comes to reign. He goes on to say, oh, that's in quote, sorry. Um, but the purpose of, of all this is where sin resides, death resides. And where Christ resides, Life resides. This is our new status as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. John eleven twenty five. It is through Christ, our joining together with him, that we can be reconciled to God, who is the source of life. For by grace you have been saved. This if you look at it, the, the dashing in this, in this phrasing here, it's like Paul just kind of wants to remind them, just, again, just in case you forgot that you were dead in trespasses and sin, just in case you forgot that and you thought maybe you deserved this, just this reminder, it was by grace. Undeserved. Unmerited. It seems kind of thrown in there. The salvation is done solely and completely by the grace of God. Our sinful state of deadness and the cross makes this clear that this life that is now available to us has its foundation in the grace, kindness of God. God responds to us sinners in mercy, which is motivated by his love and therefore the basis of this action of grace. It is because of that that Paul says later that no one may boast. Now, this transition from death to life is made possible because of another transition that once took place. 
When Christ went to the cross, our sin was transferred to him. And his righteousness, that is his perfect, obedient life, was transferred to our account. Our penalty of death that our sin brought about was transferred to him, and the reward for his righteousness was transferred to us. This is called the great exchange. This is the gospel. Verse 6 and 7 gives us further aspects of this grace. He says, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This resurrection is not necessarily speaking of a, of a future, of our future physical resurrection. Um, just as death, just as a death we once um, had was a spiritual death, so is this life a spiritual life. Paul's connecting Christ's resurrection to our transition from spiritual death to a spiritual resurrected life. As he died physically, so we were dead spiritually. And just as he was raised physically, we were raised spiritually. This is our confidence in this new life, Christ's resurrection, as if bringing us out of a spiritual death, uh, out of spiritual death to spiritual life was not enough. Paul says we have been seated with him in the heavenly places. Not only are we resurrected from this spiritual death, given a new life, given hope, but he says you are now seated with Christ in the spiritual realm. Heavenly places means that that heavenly realm where sin and death will no longer reign. Our right to dwell in, this heaven, in the heavenlies is linked with the phrase seated us with him. It is because of our union with Christ that we are now seated with him in the heavens. The apostle says in Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Basically, set your mind on where Christ is, where Christ is seated in the heavenlies, because that's where you are. That's where you belong. That is your home, not here, not now. Set your mind on that. Their verbiage has a present tense to them. Paul says that, that this is who you are now. This is, you have been raised to a new life, raised to these heavenly dwellings, raised and seated with Christ. And, and while there is a, a future aspect to this, absolutely, these truths um, is to be realized now. These things are true of us who are in Christ now. It's very much how a, a, a president candidate will, will win an election. He is the president. He, he's, he's the new president. But that, that is not really realized until Inauguration Day, right? In the same way. The point that Paul desires these Ephesian believers to understand is that their identity in Christ and who they are in Christ and live in light of this. God does not dangle a carrot in front of us in order for us to perform. Our good works come forth in light of this present reality. In light of this truth, it is because of who we are in Christ that we live a separate life unto him. This is so important for us to get right, so important for us to understand. We do not act accordingly so that we may obtain, but rather we have obtained and therefore act accordingly. We live a new life out of adoration, not obligation. Those of us that are in Christ 
We have no choice but to live this life. For, as Galatians 2.20 says, we are a new creation. New desires. New values. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Herein lays the overall purpose of our salvation. To bring God glory. All this has taken place so that God's gracious kindness toward us, through the work of his Son, Jesus Christ, might be put on display. And it is a great privilege that we have to put that on display, to share this hope that we have, to spread the good news that though you be dead in your trespasses and sins, you, there is hope to be made alive. Coming age here can mean the, the future, future ages from the first century to now. It can mean the age to come after the second coming of Christ. Or it could be a combination of the two, which is kind of where I land. Suffice it to say that God's immeasurable love, mercy, and grace toward us is manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this reality is demonstrated through our salvation in him to the glory of God. This shows the power of the gospel. That God takes that which is dead, that which is depraved, that which is contrary to him, that which is sinful, and by the power of the gospel turns it into something living, sanctified, and something that which puts his glory on display. We who are in Christ who were once children of wrath are now called children of the living God. In closing, I would like to say, in order to identify with Christ in this new life, you must first identify with him in death. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Taking up your cross, there was no other way of, of um, understanding this verse in first century time. The cross meant death. And what, what Christ is saying here is, is a denial, a dying to yourself. To put to death your own ideas, your own plans, your own desires, and exchange them for his. Have you come to that point? As, ask yourself this morning, have you come to the point where you understand that God is holy and demands perfection, and this balance, the scales have been weighed and the balance has found you wanting? That we are children of wrath. That we are hopeless. We are in a hopeless state apart from Christ. Ask yourself this morning, have you come to this point, to the end of yourself? 
Have you felt that dread upon you? That realization that I am a sinner in the midst of a holy God. Ask yourself this morning, do you know God? I'm not asking, do you know of God? The demons know of God and shut over fear. I'm not asking, do you talk about God? I'm asking, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know Christ? I'm not asking, do you believe of Christ? You, you may nod your head in, in affirmation to the things I've said, but are they true of you? Do you know him as redeemer, as savior? Have you been raised to life through Christ or are you still dead in your sins? Chasing after the desires of this world, chasing after the desires of your flesh. If this is, that is true of you, then there is upon you this very day a wrath that you cannot bear. A cup that you cannot drink and a judgment that you cannot avoid. Would you cry out to him today? Would you seek to be made right? Would you seek to be made alive? If not, then you are, as they say, a dead man walking. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me or comes to the Father except through me. There is hope in no other name, life in no other name. For those of us who are in Christ, notice the past tense that Paul uses when talking to these believers. This is who you formerly were. This is how you formerly acted. Examine your life this past week, month, year. Is there that change? Or do you reflect the world? Are you led by the spirit or the flesh? Sometimes we can entertain sin. Sometimes we can fall back into the old ways fall back into pursuing the lust of the flesh. I know I'm guilty of this at times. But may our text this morning bring about within us a deep conviction and exhort us, encourage us to live lives set apart for the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts be stirred, as Paul states, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, Ephesians 4.1. And we do this not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of our adoration, out of our appreciation, out of our love of Christ, who did for us what we can never do for ourselves. And I will leave you with Paul's words in Romans 6, 11 through 13. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Amen? Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word, O Lord. I thank you for the undeserved privilege of being able to stand up here this morning and proclaim it, God. The fact that you would use a pitiful, sinful man such as me to proclaim your word shows just how powerful and mighty you are, God. Shows how merciful you are, O Lord. It is my prayer, O Lord, that if there be anyone here this morning that is outside of Christ or who is even unsure, I pray that your word would weigh upon them today. I pray that a conviction would come upon them, a conviction that they cannot shake. I pray that by your word you fill them with dread that anyone who is dead in their sin should have, that they would dare not walk out these doors without first turning to you, without repenting and surrendering their lives to you, Lord Jesus. If there be any of us here today that is playing religion and just going through the motions, I pray the same prayer that you would lay upon them the same conviction and dread. I pray that your word would cut them and expose them, oh God. And Father, if there be any of us today that do not belong to that who do belong to you who are in Christ but have been entertaining sin would you expose us this morning may your word cut us deep there be any of us who are walking in former ways according to the flesh i pray that you would weigh on us these things and lead us to repentance oh god remind us as as we all go out in this week of the depths in which we were saved remind us of the heights that we have been raised to seated with Christ by your grace. May we walk in accordance and appreciation of that, in appreciation of your love. Store up our hearts, O oh God, to live a life worthy of this calling. It is in Christ's name I pray for his glory. Amen.